Welcome to the Life and Times of Video Games, a documentary audio series about the ideas that changed video games and the people and stories behind those ideas. My name is Richard Moss, and this is episode 32 Flight Control, and the simple little game that helped redefine an industry. We'll get going in just a moment. Revolutions bubble up beneath us, slowly, chaotically, quietly gathering energy, building up pressure, waiting for their moment, waiting for years, decades even, before suddenly something pushes them past an unknowable threshold, and they explode out violently and change our world. In video games, we've seen many revolutions, many rapid, seemingly sudden transformations driven by technological and design innovations that have rendered the old ways immediately obsolete. Programmable cartridges, gamepads, smooth scrolling graphics, digitized sound, first-person shooters, CD-ROMs, discrete graphics cards, downloadable content, app stores, multi-touch input, microtransactions, and more. Every one of these a revolution. Every one foreshadowed by a slow build-up of ideas and innovations and trends that ultimately coalesced into the kind of rapid, all-consuming upheaval that we know as a revolution. This is the story of how two such revolutions, one local, the other global, intersect with one simple little game. One simple little iPhone game that inadvertently served as a major catalyst, though not the only catalyst, for large-scale transformation. This is the story of a game called Flight Control, and of its surprising, outsized influence at a key moment of transition for the company that made it, the national games industry that rallied behind it, and the global market that embraced it. Yeah, so I um, I started with Tourist Games in Melbourne as a programmer, so I got a job there. I was 23 or something. And I was working on PC and um, Sega Saturn 3D games. This is Rob Murray, the creator of Flight Control. He'd been in the industry more than 10 years before he published his big claim to fame, starting, as you just heard, at Taurus, a primarily work-for-hire company that did, and actually still today does, budget licensed games and console and handheld ports for international publishers. And the opportunity, I guess, when I left Taurus was Game Boy, Game Boy Advance. There's a company in the UK, um, at the time, um, it was Crawfish. They, um, they resurrected themselves a couple of times. That, um, that was contracting out, was it run by an expat, Cameron Shepherd here in Australia and was contracting out some um, Game Boy uh, titles and Game Boy Advance titles to programmers and artists who would work remotely. And so that was a big opportunity that, and I was excited about Game Boy. I think everyone was excited about Game Boy Advance. It was a really cool little console. And um, that's sort of what was my entry. It was, it was being able to do a bit of, bit of work on Game Boy Advance. 
But pretty quickly, Rob got excited about a different opportunity emerging for a freelance games programmer like himself. It came via a local company called Jumbuck that had found success in mobile chat apps and wanted to branch out into games. This is back in the days when mobile phones had these tiny two-inch or less screens with input done via the keypad, just the, the dialing buttons, just when color displays were becoming common and a wider range of games were emerging than, well, Snake and Snake variants and some of that other stuff that you'd play when you got bored of Snake. So he was kind of in on the ground floor of mobile gaming's rise. And Jumbuck hired Rob as a freelancer. He'd do the design and the programming, and then he'd work with local artists on the graphics. Yeah, we, we, I got this opportunity. I think it was $6,000 for a game. And it took me, I'll say, about six weeks or two months or something like that. It was quite a big job. And, and it wasn't very rewarding. <laughs> it wasn't very rewarding for quite some time, to be honest. But what was super exciting was this was this was going to be a game that I was the developer, you know, for the first time, not just sort of perceived as a programmer, subcontractor, whatever. That wasn't the only thing that appealed to him about the opportunity. He was also energised by the challenge of trying to do more with less. And I could see also that um, mobiles uh, were going to follow Moore's law. So it was pretty clear, even back in 2001, that yes, these things look like rubbish, um, and they really were rubbish early on, but it was going to move, well, yes, it was going to follow Moore's Law, it was going to go faster than that, because it's just playing catch-up to all the technology that existed in desktop. Rob freelanced for a few years as a mobile games developer and a contract programmer for Game Boy Color and Game Boy Advance titles, Then he hired a small team and founded a company called Firemint to start scaling up his efforts. They kept doing games for Jumbuck, like Soul Daddy in LA. It was a tongue-in-cheek shoot-em-up designed to play well with those shoddy mobile phone keypads. But also larger Game Boy Advance projects, like the excellent Nicktoons Racing, which I consider as someone who's played nearly every kart racer published before 2006 to be one of the best old-school Mario Kart coins ever made. And slowly, Firemint built up expertise and a reputation as one of the best work-for-hire mobile game developers in the world. As mobile went through these rapid hardware iterations, both good and bad, I'm sure a lot of you remember the Nokia Engage, and through technological improvements... And slowly they learned the lessons that you have to learn when you deal with extreme constraints. The most useful thing was the um, psychology of it or the philosophy. For me, this was a wonderful new world. And for many console developers, they were still looking, looking down at it. Right? And many indie developers were looking down at it. And I thought, this is, this is, <laughs> this is amazing, the technology, right? On it, there was one other thing that would have that played in was um, we were used to working with very, very limited input mechanisms, but we had to be creative. Uh, so you, what could you do with a button? What could you do with this, you know, poor, some, some poor touch screens there? So it was, um, it was probably a, a creative approach to using the controls effectively. 
Through all of this, Firemint remained an anomaly. Few game development studios around the world were putting resources into mobile, which was still largely ignored as a market segment by the big publishers, who treated it as a sort of dumping ground for movie license cash-ins and spin-offs of popular game franchises. Even in Firemint's native Australia, where work-for-hire development had become the norm, most studios were focused on consoles. And friends of Rob's in the business, like the Warlords and Puzzle Quest creator Steve Faulkner, thought he was flipping mad for concentrating on mobile. Then in June 2007, Apple released the iPhone. At first it was a bit of a net negative for mobile games makers like Firemint as it meant that people who wanted a premium phone would buy an iPhone and they couldn't buy any games for it. But a year later, Apple opened the iPhone App Store, thereby making it possible for anyone to publish their own mobile apps and games at a price of their choosing. And all they had to give Apple was $100 a year for a developer account, plus a 30% sales commission. So then how... What was going through your your mind? Were, were you like really excited at the potential of the iPhone when this App Store was announced? Uh, yeah, so I had two. There's two sort of different things going through your mind. There's one, the business. There are about, I think, there were about 35 people I had employed at the time, and you know, you're always thinking, well, how do you keep paying them, and and uh, and that. So there's the the business end of it, and the other side was my um, game developer. Uh, side, I suppose, looking at it as a for its creative poten- potential, which was um, I was ecstatic. It was a large screen, you know, the touch screen, the accelerometers, everything in the same package, and it was the first time that anyone had made a phone that could work well as a games machine. Quickly, Firemint development director Kynan Woodman started looking at how they could shift development on their pet project. Real Racing, an original generic mobile racing simulation they planned to self-publish, over from the Nokia N95 to the iPhone. Soon after, as the Real Racing experiments continued, they started getting work for hire contracts on the iPhone, beginning with an iPhone version of a popular Fast and Furious licensed game that they'd made for Brew and J2ME-based handsets. But if Real Racing was to succeed, Rob felt then he needed to get a good handle on how to publish games on the iPhone, as opposed to merely develop them. It seems, you know, we're putting so much money into real racing development, and it had already shown promise, right? We were showing videos around, they were, they were getting great responses on YouTube from various people. Um, so the idea of just cold dropping real racing onto the App Store was a bit scary after all that investment to just sort of, well, let's let's go and type in whatever, you know, forms we have to, drop it on the App Store, and if we make any mistakes, well, I don't know what that means. <laughs> and at the same time, he felt a growing sense of frustration at never having the time to actually make something himself. You know, there's always frustrations when you're running a, a company and you're doing a lot of unpleasant business work most of the time and um you question you know you're questioning what you started how to why you got started in the whole thing and and can you still make your game and can you code anymore so rob decided he'd put these things together to 
Kill two birds with one stone, as the saying goes. That was my Christmas project. Uh, when I think my wife had gone away for a week, um, can't remember, some holiday or camp or something, and, and I had this week at home and I was, I was determined to, to do something, just do a little game, try and finish it. We often had these game days and, and, and things, it's just the exercise of trying to finish a game, right, in a reasonable time. The game was indeed very simple. You served as an air traffic controller for a busy airport, guiding a never-ending stream of planes, each coming from a different direction, safely down to the ground by drawing route lines for them to follow. You just press your finger on the plane, trace out a route for it to take to the runway. And the goal was to get as many planes landed as possible, without a mid-air collision. The game would just continue endlessly, until there was a collision. Did, did you have any specific influences? I know there were a few air traffic control themed games that had come before. Obviously nothing using line drawing to make the routes like you did. But were you looking at any of those or any other kinds of games or something outside of games? I did remember that the idea came from an idea of being floating around that games were just work made easy, right? And... And that somehow got to the idea that we wanted the most stressful, the most stressful work possible. <laughs> yeah, made easy. And I, I can't remember it was a few years before or something. I, I, there's a movie called Pushing Tin, which was about air traffic control. In the ultimate high pressure job, Nick Falzone was in control of everyone's life. Welcome to my sky. But his own. Most stressful jobs, one of the most high, you know, very high, um, high stakes, very intense. And so it sort of came from that philosophy, that idea that, um, you know, this is even more intense than, I don't know, running a kitchen, which was a lot of popular cooking games at the time, right? And they're all time management and stuff. So that was, that was the first inspiration. And of course, it immediately registered that people had made air traffic game, control games before. And um, and there were a couple. I think there was a microprose one back in the nineties or something that was was all very serious. And <laughs> so um, there was that as well. And um, a third component was the weekend before. It was just what I liked to play with. I liked the touchscreen, and I wanted. I, I was playing with a, a kind of a you know just touch. I just rub your finger on the screen, and then this sort of. Um, uh, plasma kind of follows your finger around and I was just exploring that that what I like the feel of. So it was those things sort of intersecting along with the idea that I had to finish a game this week, so I had to decide. And it was that decision I had to... This was... It was the easiest decision that, okay, this all... Everything fits together. Doesn't seem brilliant. Seemed It seemed like the wrong sort of game because it was too... I thought it was an arcade. It was too intense. It was an arcade game for hardcore gamers as I, as I saw it at the inception of the idea because I thought this is this is asking you to to twitch to move you you know it's so I, I, I sort of felt it was not right but it's it's a good idea it's an idea that held together it was a middle of the road idea I could finish it this week and I, I did it so that's where it all came from as best as I can recall <laughs> middle of the road idea turns into a million seller <laughs> yeah well I, I in hindsight I have a different view that it's hard to you just got to make games that 
an architecture is very similar, something that works. If it all kind of works and fits together, you can't make the dream game. The dream game, the dream home, it's very difficult. But something that actually fits together, the concept um, matches the mechanics, the, the story idea behind it sort of makes sense. It may not be the type of game that you thought you were going to make. It was too arcadey, but I guess it all fit together and worked, and that's a really big deal because there's you, there's not many things that fit together and work like that. They're, a lot of games are forced, creatively forced, to achieve uh, a, a, um, your ideal outcome. When Rob showed his flight control demo to his wife, she immediately got excited and started to look for music and sound effects and helping to improve the user interface. And um, yes, yeah, our art director got excited and brought it in and he, he just went home one weekend, I think, and started coming back with art, right, so for the look and the, and the feel. Just a few of Firemint's 35 staff were involved initially. Each would fiddle around on the weekends and after hours with ideas for how to improve the game. And we kept it out of the office throughout its development. So we never did any work at the office, really except for some publishing form filling and stuff like that. Everyone sort of worked in it, just played around on their spare time. After several weeks of spare time work to finish the game off, Firemint submitted Flight Control to Apple on February 22nd. It got through Apple's App Store submission process without any major hiccups, and the game came out on March 5th, 2009. Just before the Game Developers Conference. They set an introductory price of 99 cents, with plans to jump up to 2.99 soon after release, because that was what low-budget, non-junk apps cost at the time. Then they spent about $1,000 on ads, just to see if that was something that worked, which at the time it wasn't, and they emailed a bunch of journalists about the game. Pocket Gamer provided some positive early coverage, and a fast-growing blog called Touch Arcade wasn't far behind. Then they went off to GDC, happy that they'd learnt some useful lessons about the iPhone publishing process. Rocket got under it at some point, right in the middle of the conference as it was heading up into the hundreds and then right up to, just kept going right up to number one, right while we were there. And that was an astounding experience, actually, being around the whole games industry. And suddenly everyone starts playing your game and suddenly it's the new number one. And it's the, it's, yeah. And that was happening at the time when THQ, I think, were, uh, whether they were going bankrupt or into liquidation, I can't remember. Their bankruptcy came a few years later. At this point, it was just financial struggles and a massive cost-cutting effort to stem the bleeding. But they were definitely going off to can our, our biggest project at, at um, work, which was Stuntman on the Nintendo DS. And, um, and so I was thinking, wow, what are we going to do? We're gonna, there's so much revenue to be lost from that. At the same time as flight control was going to number one and we had no idea what that meant. But we could start to see some big days. I think there was a $40,000 day at number one. Whoa, you know, that was um, one day. And here is where our story intersects with a different, more tragic trend. The global financial crisis had hit its zenith in September the previous year with the collapse of financial services giant Lehman Brothers. And like all other big money businesses, the video game industry was reeling from the fallout. 
the Australian games industry was particularly vulnerable. It had structured itself around work for hire development, and its studios thrived on market stability and on favourable currency conversions, making them cheaper than similarly equipped studios elsewhere in the world. That all changed in a matter of weeks in 2008. And uh, pretty quickly, the Australian dollar went from being worth about 60 to 70 cents to the US dollar to parity, and then it went to, it was worth a dollar 10 to the US dollar. This is Morgan Jaffet, an Aussie developer who at the time served as Pandemic Studios creative director in their Brisbane studio. And that change was the fundamental linchpin that pulled the the rug out from every internationally owned Australian developer. And when I say every internationally owned Australian developer, that was all of them in, in major terms, with the exception of Chrome. And of course, Chrome was really dependent on being a cost-effective place to do license games. License games were starting to fade away. And without being able to make the cost-effective argument, it was it was a bad time for Chrome as well. To really give you a sense of the disaster here, let's run through some studio names. So Pandemic Australia was the first big one to go. They officially closed in January 2009, though Jaffet says they were in, I quote, desperate straits for six months prior to that. Chrome and Tantalus laid off dozens of staff later that year, with Chrome shrinking from 400-plus staff in three cities to just 40 people in one location. Blue Tongue Entertainment, who had made the cool Wii game called The Blob, had layoffs to stem their bleeding, and then they shuttered completely in 2011, on the same day as THQ Studio Australia. LA Noir developer Team Bondi shut down that same year. EA-owned studio Visceral Games Melbourne closed too. They'd helped to make the hit horror game Dead Space. And several other Australian studios also closed between the start of 2009 and the end of 2012, as they each either ran out of cash reserves or were closed by their parent company. So what we were left with was was people like Tantalus and Taurus, Big Ant. Um, those guys did heroic work to hang on through that period. But overnight, uh, the Australian games industry went from employing over a thousand people to employing very few. Um, there are there are people who managed to get laid off, you know, four or five times. Go to one one company, go to another, get laid off. It was just it felt like dominoes falling down, and um, and so not only was it depressing to watch the entire games. Uh, local games industry, particularly where it felt like the exciting things that were that were happening just just fall apart. But it was distressing because it felt like there was no place for those that, that talent to go. The Australian games industry needed a new model. From the ashes of pandemic, Morgan Jaffet and a few of his colleagues founded a company called Defiant Development. Their goal was to find that new model, to help rebuild an industry in ruins, and to give the world-class talent a reason to stay. 
So we started with augmented reality and we're doing some early uh, augmented reality work. And we were looking at, you know, architectural pre-visualization stuff. And then we were doing, we did some web games. We helped people do uh, an educational web title. At one point, we were looking at doing some med tech stuff, which was like training for, for medical science. And I mean, the thing I think about game developers in general is that they tend to become game developers because they really want to make games. So it sort of didn't stop. Like, no matter what we were doing, we always accidentally ended up making games. And and it's that that, that kind of swung us around. And, yeah, there was this moment where flight control came out and you were suddenly like, oh, well, this is real business. This is... This is a real opportunity for developers at our scale. Uh, it's still like, I have no idea off the top of my head how much money uh, Flight Control made eventually. And I'm sure whatever it was, it would have been well worthwhile for, for the bigger publishers. But it didn't feel, in those early days, it didn't, it didn't feel like you were going head to head against EA because EA was generally looking at things and going, can this make us $200 million? And it wasn't obvious at that time, in point in time, that, that a flight control sort of game could make that sort of money. But it could definitely make half a million dollars, a million dollars, and that was certainly enough to keep small studios plugging along, right? So all of a sudden that started feeling like a space where we had opportunity to, to play. We'll continue with the story right after this short break. I make the Life and Times video games all by myself, and it takes dozens of hours to do this every episode, often 30 or 40 hours just for the writing, editing and mixing, plus more for research and interviews and transcribing. And I enjoy doing all of this, but it can be tough to make the time for it when it's just a side project. So if you like what I do here, or you just want to stop hearing these mid-episode interruptions, please consider subscribing to my Patreon. At patreon.com slash life and times of video games that's patreon.com slash life and times of video games all one word all right now let's get back to the show when we left off you just heard about the origins of the hit mobile game flight control and of the collapse of the australian games industry that happened right around that same time it came out and how these two threads intertwined when Rob Murray's friends and colleagues in the Aussie industry realised that its success meant small-scale studios could make money in mobile. Now let's hear more from Morgan Jaffet. Flight Control answered a question to me that hadn't been asked yet consciously, which is how do you make stuff that's natively touched? You know, what are the gestures that are native to touch? And, of course, this is the same question that I think reaches its Australian apex in Fruit Ninja. But I don't... That question had not been raised to the level of conscious thought for me until I saw Flight Control. So when you see Flight Control, uh, the thing that stood out for me was it was different, right? It was nobody... It wasn't anybody else's game tried to make work 
on this machine. It was a game for this machine. And that was the first time I went, oh, that's what should, that's what we should be thinking about is, is games for this machine. For Jaffet and Defiant Development, that revelation proved transformative. They had a modest success in 2010 with Rocket Bunnies. Then in 2012, they had their first hit with Ski Safari, which helped pave the way for huge success with the two non-mobile Hand of Fate roguelike deck-building role-playing games. They weren't alone in this thinking. Around the same time, Halfbrick switched from handheld games to mobile and had the perpetual number two App Store bestseller Fruit Ninja. Down in Melbourne, the voxel agents formed to pursue mobile games, initially with a super successful puzzle series called Train Conductor. Former Tantalus programmer Matt Hall went solo under the name of ClickTok and had a hit with Doodle Find. And then another one, a bigger one, with Little Things Forever. And this is just naming a few of the big early successes. There's been a steady flow of them since then too. Chances are if you play mobile games, you've played at least one Australian-made game. And probably many. Mobile reinvigorated and revitalised the Australian games industry. And the catalyst for this was Flight Control, which hit 2 million sales in less than a year and 3 million in less than two years. It gave an industry in freefall something to cling onto. It would do nothing to save the giants of the local game scene. They were too weighed down by the processes and structures of the past. But the small studios and the talented individuals brave enough to form small studios, they now had a precedent to follow. Not quite a magic formula, but a a rough model for success. If you could execute well enough on the design of your game, and if you could get in before the window of opportunity snapped shut on App Store Indies. Now this in itself is a magnificent legacy for one game to have, to be the model on which an industry rebuilds itself. But that is not Flight Control's sole legacy. I said at the start of this story that Flight Control had an outsized influence not only on the Australian games industry, but also on the global games market and on the company that made it. So what of those? Well, for Firemint, its legacy is simple. Flight Control accomplished two great things for a company that was really hurting from the cancellation of a critical work-for-hire project. First, it gave them financial security. And, you know, Flight Control came in at the time when THQ was was pulling out, leaving us a, I don't know what that was, maybe a half-million-dollar hole there. And um, we had Real Racing to fund, and we were just trying to decide how far do we want to go with Real Racing. We went a lot further because of Flight Control. We delayed it and made it better. And second, likewise tying into Real Racing, Flight Control established Firemint as a maker of polished, innovative, well-designed iPhone games, which in turn made both press and players, and Apple too, eager to sample their big flagship game, which thanks to Flight Control's profits, would become the first big-ish budget AAA caliber mobile game that anyone had released. And then Real Racing's success in turn contributed to EA deciding to buy Firemint 
and merge them with the nearby iron monkeys to form Fire Monkeys, a studio best known today for The Sims Freeplay and Real Racing 3. As for Flight Control's influence on the global games market and the reasons for its global success, well, that's a bit more complicated. There was a thirst for something novel. The audience of the App Store was different at the time. Now I think I'd do better with a pokey machine than um, a novel game. <laughs> a pokey machine well implemented with just the right 50 dopamine levels or whatever you have to do. So it, the audience was amazing at the time. You know, this was an early adoption audience and the Apple audience and um, people call them fanboys and stuff like that, but they loved design and they loved they loved the new and they loved the novel and, you know, that's why they had these devices at their where you'd pay an expense for that. Whereas we're now in the age of cynical monetization, 2009 was a time when a mobile game could be both earnest and highly successful. When a game with a truly indie spirit could shine, just on its merits, because the market hadn't yet become hypersaturated like it is today. It was the right game for the right time. And I say that in the sense that It was what people wanted, but didn't know how to ask for. And in the sense that it wasn't like the typical fair of the era. It's interesting because now, it's probably less casual than what we'd call casual now, but it was was certainly very casual for the the time. And I just think, like, it didn't in any way try to look like a, again, quotation marks, real game. There was all this stuff going on on console and PC and and in all the other places that, that people were making games that involved more, so, so more complexity, more ongoing details, infantries and management screens and, you know, overloaded controls, hold down this, press that, do, these, do the other. And Flight Control avoided all of that it would have been so easy to give you a flight controller and gain XP and, you know, spend it on, you know, stat points. Like, those are very natural things for people to do when making games in that era. And it resisted all of that, and, uh, and I think to its, to its great benefit. And so when you pulled all this together, its newness, its fresh design, the novelty and the purity of its line drawing and time management or rather chaos management mechanics, its relatively broad appeal, its fortunate timing, and the tastes of the early iPhone audience, it all came together to make flight control resonate on a deep level. And that, as former Touch Arcade editor Eli Holdap once said on the Touch Arcade show, meant a big impact. Because, and at the time in the App Store, or then, like, everyone was trying to figure out, like, all right, well, how do we... How do we make games that make sense on this platform? And um, line drawing as a control mechanic, um, like really hit it big. And it started with flight control. And a lot of the things that flight control did with, you know, like how it handled like drawing the lines and smoothing the lines and a bunch of other stuff like that kind of paved the way for an entire genre of games that would have been like really big over the next couple of years. I mean, like line drawing as a as a control method 
essentially turned into the next big thing. And additionally, like Flight Control is one of the first iOS games that kind of like gamers and the, the games media and stuff like that started favorably posting about being like, hey, this is actually a you know, a really awesome game that you should get on your iPhone because, like, this is the only thing that, this is the only kind of thing that you can exclusively play on your iPhone that really makes sense at the time, I guess. Right. Flight Control kicked off a broad discussion about mobile games in the mainstream press, in games industry discussions, and in the specialist games press. It legitimized the medium of mobile gaming and contributed to a trend later accelerated by hits like Angry Birds, Fruit Ninja, Candy Crush, Clash of Clans, and Drop 7, to pour more resources into this new platform. Because on the one hand, you had business people shouting, just look how lucrative it is. And on the other, you had creative people, smitten by the thought that there was a viable audience waiting for the results of their weird design experimentations on an exciting and new platform that had paradigm-shifting input mechanisms. And now, as it happens, we're poised for another big seismic shift again, as Epic Games battles with Apple, and regulators look at loot boxes, and free-to-play increasingly dominates the industry, and subscription-based models strive for a new role, and Roblox becomes a games platform all unto itself and virtual reality matures, and indies struggle for attention, and so on, and so forth. And as the Australian games industry embarks on another state change, from its pre-GFC AAA focus, to today's indie domination, to something different again just around the corner. And there's just so much chaos and tension coiled up, waiting for its moment to explode out, and change everything again. And as Morgan Jaffet notes, this chaos and turbulence in games right now might just be a portent of a new revolution just about to strike. I mean, this is one of the things that I've always felt is true, right? A lot of energy gets bound up in institutions and systems. It takes an enormous amount of energy to, to, to construct and build those things, but that energy is then very much tied up. And sometimes it's only when that collapses and explodes that you get that energy back to put into new forms that, that are more suitable for the, the historical moment that, that you're in. And I think that's what was happening through that whole period. And flight control was really one of the first explosions that uh, that started to to blow things up and yeah i'm i'm optimistic that we're in a moment right now when the same the same starting to happen Mm. it's it's amazing how it seems to work out as a roughly a 10-year cycle for things resetting it it is and it it's that whole thing to where I mean, this used to be the Silicon Valley ethos, right, which is too early, too early, too early, too late. And and it can really feel like that. It can, I think every moment we were involved, we felt we were too early. And uh, you've got to have a bit of a hunger to go where the ground is ill-defined. 
The Life and Times of Video Games is created entirely by me, Richard Moss. And as it's a one-man operation, you'd be helping me tremendously just by sharing the show and the episodes that you enjoy with other people. This was the first episode in Season 5. I'm going for another loose theming this season, so we'll be jumping around a bit in topics, but I want to try to have a consistent theme of unexpected and outsized influence. I've had a few stories fall through recently, and I'm just uh, scrambling to uh, replace them, so I'm not sure on the timeline for the for the season, but I'll definitely be back with another episode in June, maybe two, and with another interview and another soundbite soon as well. In the meantime, if you'd like to support what I do here, you can, as I said before, tell other people about it. You can also buy my books. Shareware Heroes is in production right now and can be pre-ordered, while The Secret History of Mac Gaming has a second edition coming soon, uh, announcement next month. And you can donate via PayPal on paypal.me slash or subscribe to my Patreon on patreon.com slash life and times of video games. This show only still exists because of the support and encouragement of my patrons. And so I want to give a special shout out and thank you to well, all of them, but particularly to my wonderful producer-level backers, Joel Weber. Vivek Mohan, Seth Robinson, Simon Moss, Kerry Clanton, Scott Grant, Wade Trugaskis, and Rob Everhart. If you would like to join them and get some neat bonus content and monthly status updates, amongst some other things, then that link again is patreon.com slash life and times of video games. And as always, you can find all this information and more at my website, lifeandtimes.games. Until next time, my name is Richard Moss, and this was The Life and Times of Video Games. Thanks for listening. I'll see ya.